Uh, have you ever been to a conference before or a seminar of any sort and somebody gets up on the stage and they just start talking and you're sitting there in your seat and you're wondering to yourself, who is this person? Why are they on the stage? Why are they talking to me? What is it that they have to say? Why uh, do they seem to have the credentials? What experience do they have? What education do they have? Who are they? And you're sitting there and and as these things are pounding in your head, they're starting to talk, and you decide, you know, I'm going to pull out that conference packet, right? And you pull it out, and you start flipping through it. You're looking for the schedule. Where are we at right now? What session are we in? And you figure out who's supposed to be speaking at that time. You're like, okay, great. So you figure out it's, it's Joe Smith. Joe Smith is the uh, speaker. That's wonderful. That's great and all, but... Who is it about this person? Well, why is this, is this person unique? So then you're like, maybe this conference has put together a short little bio in the front. So now you're flipping through again, trying to find the bios for this, uh, this speaker and figure out maybe their credentials and where they've come from. And all the while, this person's up on the stage and they're beginning their speech and they're talking and you are completely not clued in to what is going on because you have no idea who they are and your desire is to find out. Well... If you are like that kind of person, you just got to know who's talking to you, then it's a good thing that most of the time you go to conferences, there's some sort of an introduction, right? Whoever the MC or the host is is going to get up. They're going to introduce their speaker. And, you know, there's some key characteristics to these introductions, right? And the first one is they never start off by telling you who they are, right? They're going to get up and they're going to start talking and say, uh, this, our speaker is so, uh, you know, they have this education. They've got a PhD from this university. They've been working in this field for so long, and they start listing their academic success. They start listing some of perhaps their professional achievements. They've written so many books. They've been a New York Times bestseller. They've served in X, Y, and Z roles over the last few years. They're the president of such and such, and you're like, oh, wow, man, this person's really great. And then perhaps, you know, you're at a, a conference where it would make sense. They start to introduce their, their personal family a little bit. Their Joe Smith is married to Mary Smith. And um, you go on, and you're like, okay, that's wonderful. They have four kids. They live in Wyoming. And I don't know who lives in Wyoming, but Joe Smith and Mary Smith live in Wyoming. And uh, you're like, wow, you know, I feel like I'm getting to know this person. And then at the end, they'll finally say, please welcome with me to the stage Joe Smith. And Joe Smith comes up. And Hurrah, you know, Joe Smith's up there, and you're like, all right, how's this going to go? And he's, he's like, hey, I, thanks for having me here. I'm so excited to be here with all of you. And he starts to, you know, a little small talk to break the ice, because, you know, there's that awkward moment, right, when someone gets up to speak, and it's like, how's this going to go? And so he starts to, to break the ice with a small talk, build some rapport before he goes into his lecture or whatever it is, and, and then, you know, a lot of people start to check out, and it's like, that was great at the beginning too far? Take it too far? Maybe. Since I'm the one up here and you guys, some of you may fall asleep, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. But, um, you know, if you're wondering who I am, you didn't miss the grand introduction. If someone were to come up here and introduce me, they wouldn't say, Jeremy has a PhD from Moody Bible Institute. or No, he, they wouldn't say Jeremy has three masters. No, they, they wouldn't even say that Jeremy has a master's. <laughs> They might say he is a great master, but no. Um, they wouldn't say that Jeremy has all these career achievements. I've not written any books. I haven't, you know, spoken at prestigious schools or colleges. I'm not taught in universities, whatever. They'd say, here's a youth pastor who, who loves people, loves the Lord, and is doing what God has called him to do, right? Nothing spectacular, but 
You know, I'm the, the middle school youth pastor here at Village, if you're uh, here with us for the first time or you're visiting. And uh, I've been here for about five years. It's been a great privilege to serve in those roles. And I've also had the opportunity to serve with the uh, first impressions teams around the church. So if you are visiting with us this morning, I just want to extend a very warm welcome to you and say I'm so glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. And I hope that you uh, truly enjoy your experience here um, this morning. I want to invite all of you to turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 16 to 34. We're going to continue on our sermon series through Acts called Unstoppable. And as we've been working through Acts so far this year, we have seen the gospel message is truly an unstoppable force. It has gone forth um, throughout all the regions, um, and new people have been hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. Churches have been established. And this morning we're going to work our way through the passage where the Athenians, Paul has found himself in Athens, and we're going to see how they have learned of Jesus Christ, and they are pondering these things as Paul speaks in the Aragopolis and uh, seeks to introduce them to the unknown God. These people apparently had no idea who he is, and so let's look at our passage this morning and see what God's Word has for us. Let's look at Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, remember he was waiting for uh, Timothy and Silas, while he was waiting for them, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the, heart, the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others says, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and the woman named Damaris and others with them. Uh, pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for just this encouragement, this story of the gospel going forth as people who had no idea who you were, there was an opportunity for them to hear of you. We thank you that Paul had the boldness to stand in their midst and uh, speak of your character and the things that you've done. I pray, Lord, that now as we spend our time working through this passage and discussing it together, that you would speak through me and open our hearts to the truths that your word would have for us. I pray that we would walk out of here with new things to apply and think about in our very lives and have learned something new about you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's in Athens, and I want you to imagine with me, this is a text that is a descriptive text. It's telling us something that has happened. I don't think that this text was given to us in Scripture for us to look at and say, let's be more like Paul. Right? We can learn things from Paul, but this is a story. God is telling us how the gospel has gone forth and how it uh, began to take root even in a city like Athens. So I want to, to take us to that spot for a second. So I want to imagine that we rewind you know, a long time, a long time, and we're walking into this, this grand city of Athens. And as you're in the, the countryside lead, leading into the city, you look into the city and you see in the midst of it, the Acropolis. And up on the Acropolis is a, a building, a temple that each of us are really familiar with. We've seen pictures of it, the Parthenon. And there's all this splendor, and we see pictures of the Parthenon now, and it's just this white building, right, with, with pillars, some of them broken. And, but I want you to imagine that in the heyday of Athens, in this time, this building wouldn't have just been white with pillars. It would have been glistening in the sun, I'm sure, beautiful colors and artwork around the top of it. And you're walking in and you're seeing this. And you come into the city and you find some of the most beautiful architecture of the day. And as you walk the city streets, there's sculptures of idols and gods all around you. And, and easily you're, you're feeling consumed with this, this culture and this religiousness of the city. And you could be struck in awe with this. But as Paul entered the city, remember, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. It could have been easy for him to say, you know what, I'm going to kick back and relax for a couple days while they're on their way here, and we'll get things going. I've been real busy. I've been bouncing from town to town. I mean, I just got chased out of Berea by people who wanted to harm me. I just need a breather. But as Paul walked the city streets, he didn't see all the images of the idols and think, you know what, what, what a crazy thing. You know, they believe in all these other things. I believe in God. This is great. You know, it is what it is. I'm only here for perhaps a short time. But it says that his heart was, his spirit was provoked while he was there. As he walked through the city, he was aware of the idols and the false gods that they worshiped. And it, it stirred his heart to want to intervene and make a change, right? He didn't just say, great. To you, yours. To me, mine. Let's just keep going. But he wanted to do something. And so we're going to learn that Paul's visit to Athens reminds us that we should have a burden for the lost. We should have a burden for the lost. And as we go through our outline this morning, we're going to leave today with one sentence that is a theme throughout this passage that we can walk away with and remember. And the first part of it is our burden for the lost. We've seen throughout the whole book of Acts, last year we we went through the first half of Acts, this year we're working through the second half, and we've seen throughout this whole book stories of how the gospel is going forth for new people. It starts by, by reaching out to the Gentiles, which was a really big deal to start. Remember all the Jews were having a very difficult time. with how, how could the Gentiles be welcomed in as, as the people of God? We've seen the gospel go out to the poor. 
the alienated. We've seen the gospel reach out to religious leaders and, and those totally opposed to religion. We've seen it reach out and impact political leaders. And today we're seeing the gospel reach out yet again and make an impact in people who think with their minds, the, the intellectuals, right? Those who would pride themselves on their smarts. So while it's not a prescriptive text, I do want to walk away with some encouragements. We need to engage with the culture around us. If we're going to have a burden for the lost, it's great to come to church. It's great to sit in, in the presence of other believers and say, yeah, you know what, we need, to have, we need to have a burden for the lost. We need to see the lost people around us. And we need to go. We need to make an impact. We need to reach out to them. And, and we talk about those things and the comforts of the church and say, this is awesome. Yeah, I can rally behind this. And so many of us will sit here and we'll get, we'll get hoorah about reaching the lost, but then... We don't engage with that mission in our day-to-day. So I want to talk about two things and how do we develop, how do we cultivate a burden for the lost, not an awareness for the lost, but a burden for it, that our hearts today would be provoked to share the gospel message, to reach out to those who live around you, that you go to school with, the people that you work with, your family members, your friends who don't know Jesus. And the first is to interact with the world around us. Notice as Paul entered the city, he didn't just go and sit in the the synagogues or someplace that he was comfortable and just stay there. But Paul was out in the marketplace. He he taught in the synagogues. He was there. He, He spoke to the Jews about Christ, but he also engaged with the culture around him. He engaged with uh, what they believed and said, I am aware of these things. He interacted with the world around us. And there's three points, I want to kind of give a continuum, three points of where people, especially Christians, will typically land when we talk about interacting with the world around us. The first is Christians who become very fearful of adopting the sinful habits or the the idolatrousness of our, I don't even know if that's a word, of our culture around us, right? And so in their fear of adopting these things, these Christians will kind of seclude themselves from the world. They'll separate as much as they can. They find a Christian community. They might jump in, sell out for that group of people, but they don't want to engage all that much, as minimal as possible with the sinful world. Because, well, they're not like me. They, what if I catch their sins? You know, and they, they sit in the, the comforts of their own homes and they build these walls as if their sin, but beyond this point, man, we don't deal with that stuff. We're Christians. We don't have these sins. First, that's a, that's a great lie. We all deal with sins. The only difference is you and I have found the solution for it. We found the freedom from it. So we shouldn't separate. You might call these Christians hermit Christians. The second point might be on the the total flip side. right? Some Christians may see uh, their hermit Christian friends and say, I don't want to be like that. I I know that I'm supposed to be engaging with the world. And so they'll jump out and say, I'm going to engage with the world. And they do it so much that to the point where they look exactly like the world. They do the things the world does. They're part of all the same things. And they're, they banner it with the, I'm reaching the lost. Well, you're acting like the lost. You are the lost. 
And they'll be a part of church. They'll show up. You may see them every now and then. But, you know, if something else comes up, they're probably going to jump ship and go with that for a little while. And when challenged on it, they might just say, hey, I'm really just trying to reach, reach people who don't know Christ. But in the same hand, you're forsaking your, your testimony, your Christian community that you need to be part of. These might be chameleon Christians. And the third is somewhere down the middle. You're not necessarily one of these three, but somewhere in this continuum are, are Christians who are committed fully to the gospel work of the kingdom of God. And in so, they're finding a, a balance in their life between serving the church, their brothers and sisters in Christ, and being a part of that community and still reaching out to the lost world around them. I, I was thinking of a, of a game that we play with the youth group. It's this version of tag. I'll be honest with you, I don't really even know what we call it. Um, but the kids pair up or they get in groups and they, they link arms. Okay, And so as you link arms, the way it works is only the people on the end can tag. Right, So you have to be linked to your team, and then you, the people on the ends are tagging. So as you tag someone, they become part, and, and your line just gets longer, and you go around. It's, it's great to watch the kids try to play it because they just pull all the different ways, and great team-building activity. But I was reminded of that with this because it's like in that you have to be connected to your team, and yet you're still reaching out and trying to get other people. And that's what we should be like as Christians. We should be firmly connected and rooted in our church community with brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to support us and challenge us and hold us up and yet still not be clinging to them like this, but holding firm and reaching out to the world around us and saying, hey, I want you to be part of this. I've found something here that, that I think you would benefit from. I want you to come and enjoy this, experience this with me. And we reach out to those around us. So we need to interact with that world around us. I want to be, let that be a challenge. When's the last time that you invited an unbelieving friend or family over for dinner? Just for the sake of spending time with them. Really investing those moments. Being intentional about looking for the opportunities. Not just to say, let's have dinner, let's play some games, whatever it may be. But say, yeah, I want to do this intentionally to reach people for Jesus Christ. To reach people for Jesus. So we need to interact. Secondly, we need to identify idols in our own culture. So as we do interact with the world, we need to do so critically. Examining the values and and the worship that goes on around us. Right? We as human beings are creatures of worship. Whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, we were created to worship and that's what we do. We worship. But idolatry is falsely directed worship. So we as Christians need to be aware of these things as we interact with the world around us that we don't become influenced and become idolaters ourselves. So what are some idols in our culture today? What about success? We live in America. The American dream, right? We work hard. You, uh, who even knows what the American dream is today? It's, it's always changing. But we're always striving for success, getting better, a a nicer car, more money in the bank account, go on nicer vacations, wear nicer clothes, have nicer gadgets, live in a bigger home. We strive after success, and people have sacrificed so much for the sake of their own success. Some will give up their families, their friends, just to be successful in their careers. 
entertainment. It's like at an all-time high right now, right? We got Netflix, we got all streaming, you know, who watches live TV now? It's all just streaming it because that's more convenient for us. It's for our own entertainment. And, you know, heaven forbid somebody step on the toes of our, our leisure and entertainment. And I'm not saying that those things are wrong, but do we elevate them to too high a standard that they've become an idol to us? That we worship our entertainment? That we hold it to such a high standard and esteem that we even at times lift it above God? Our convenience... You can shop without leaving home. You can get food in three minutes, and if it takes you four, then you're ticked. And my wife has worked in food service, and I know. She has told me stories. Not of you guys. But she has told me stories of our culture and how people get so irritated with their convenience by going to a place like Jimmy John's, freaky fast, that's like, really? That's what you're going to get worked up about? That's what you're going to cuss someone out about? It's because they put mayonnaise on your sandwich and you ask for no mayonnaise? Like, I get it, but you got to, like, respond like that? It takes you three minutes to wait in line instead of freaky fast, your sandwich is done by the time you pull up to the drive-thru? Our convenience has been elevated but one thing that's common through, through all of these is ourselves. We live in a, a nation, in a culture that worships the individual. That while these things may become idols, while we could talk about the idols of, you know, perhaps our cell phones, our TVs, our material items, we could talk about those things, sure, but perhaps one of the greatest idols that is threatening our cultures, threatening the church, is th- the individual. Have we perhaps become the idol in our life that has prevented us from uh, worshiping God the way we should? Do we kind of just welcome God in and say, hey, you know what, when you fit my agenda, when you fit into my life, then I'm going to worship you? Or do we uh, change our life and, and move it around to fit around God? That He is the utmost priority. That He is the object of our worship. That He is everything that we are about. That, that all of our activities, our entertainment, um, the things that we take part in, our, our social groups, our extracurricular activities, those things revolve around God, not God revolving around them. We need to not be the idols in our lives. But Jeremy, why is idolatry so bad? I get it, like, as the church, we shouldn't be a part of idolatry. But, you know, the, we're talking about non-believers here. We shouldn't expect any different. They don't trust in God. Well, and you're right. Non-believers are going to be idolaters. But that's because they're lost. So no, we shouldn't go throughout our days and be like, you know what, I'm going to just worry about me staying away from idolatry. But I'm going to let everyone that I work with, I'm going to let everyone that I live near, just be fine with it and indulge in all the idols that they may want to be a part of because that's them. That's not having a burden for the lost. That's being aware of the lost, recognizing its existence, lost people around us, destined for hell, and saying, that's fine. You know, they're going to do th- If the opportunity comes up, I'll talk about it. That is not having a burden for the lost. 
having a burden for the lost is to go out of your way to intervene in someone's life and share with them the hope that you have found in Jesus. So Paul's visit to Athens reminds us that not only should we have a burden for the lost, but that that burden for the lost should lead us to introduce people to God. And, you know, we, we get to this point and, you know, we start talking about witnessing and, and sharing the gospel and, and there's different people in this room. You might be the person, when we start talking about sharing your faith, your blood starts pumping and you're getting excited because, man, you have a passion for sharing Jesus. You're like, yes, we are going to do this. And you know what? You're sitting there and, and as we're, you're thinking right now, you're like, yeah. Why can't we reach every single person for Jesus? Look at how many of us are in this room. And this is one service of one of the village campuses, which is just one church in this area. How, how could Christians in this area not reach every single person in the Fox Valley area for Jesus? We're going to do this. And you're getting all hyped up, and you're excited, and you're fired up, and you're like, tomorrow, I know who I'm talking to at work. I've got to talk to them about Jesus. It's going to happen. You are our gifted evangelists. And praise God for you. I'm not that gifted. I'm more of the other person who might be sitting here and saying, your blood's starting to pump, but more out of anxiety. Like, oh, sharing our faith. Like, yeah, I I know this is something I'm supposed to do, but really me? Like, I don't know, you know. They're so much better at it than my... Maybe they could just go. You know, And, and Mario and I love it with... Um, our, our students, sometimes they'll, they'll bring their friends uh, to church and they'll be like, I, I was going to talk about Jesus, but, but you do it. You do it. And I'm like, what? what? No, you should, right? You should tell them about Jesus. That's the fun part. Scary part. But it's fun. We should be reaching out. All of us. I recognize that, that many of you have been gifted in evangelism. And that's all. You should be paving the way, leading an example. But all of us as disciples of Jesus Christ have been called to introduce people to God. To tell people about Jesus. So whether you're gifted or not, God has given each of us many opportunities. And you know what they are. You know those times when you've, you've been talking to someone and it's like the Holy Spirit just drives something through your heart and you're like, I'm supposed to tell them about Jesus right now. And you sit there and you're like, I know I'm supposed to do it. I know I'm supposed to do it. And sometimes we just, we just skip out on that opportunity and say, well, we, we twiddle our thumbs a little too much. Am I going to know the right things to say? How do I bring it up? Well, what if they ask me, you know what, they're probably going to ask me something that I don't know the answer to. So it's, and that would make me look really bad, which would probably make the gospel look really bad. So you know what, I'm just not going to bring it up at all. It's better to just not bring it up. You know, If they were supposed to believe in God, somebody else will share the gospel with them. And we skip the whole opportunity altogether. Don't skip those opportunities anymore. Stand up. Be bold for Jesus. It's going to be intimidating for those of us who, it's it's a little scary to step out and, and start talking about Jesus with somebody personally. But take that step. So when we see people, you know, before I get to the next thought, you know, we think so often of evangelism and sharing our faith as such an intellectual thing. 
It's all about having the right arguments. It's all about having the right defense, right? We're worried the second we start talking about Jesus, about what is this person going to think of me? What is this person going to come back with? You know, because we live in such like a debate culture. I'll fire back. Well, what about this? And, you know, so we, we view evangelism naturally just as such an intellectual argument which can easily turn talking about God or turn God, the idea of God in our minds and the people we're talking to into just some ideology or some idea that's distant and disconnected from us as people. But what I thought was really interesting as I looked at our passages that Paul's primary concern is introducing them to God personally, telling them who this God is. And as you and I, that's why each of us have the opportunity and the ability to share our faith. Because you don't have to be a scholar to talk about Jesus. As a matter of fact, sometimes the most effective evangelists are people who aren't scholars. The disciples weren't scholars. They were credited many times as being uneducated men. But they had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They walked with him. They knew who he was. And that's where as believers, each of us have that. You, me, all of us can talk about who we know Jesus to be if we're walking with him and we know his character. And so if we view evangelism as telling people about God personally rather than just spewing intellectual facts, it involves us telling them about what God has done. Notice Paul, as he begins saying, he says, well, I notice you have this uh, altar with the inscription to the unknown God. So what you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and the earth, does not live in temples. So he starts off talking about, well, what has God done? What has God done? And Paul jumps back to creation, and this was effective for the people he's talking to, because as Athenians, they believed they were like this, this super breed of humans. They just were created out of the dust as like the top tier humanity. They didn't really have a creator per se. And so Paul starts back at creation saying, this is what God has done. God has created the entire universe. And you know, that tells us some things about God. Right? You and I, we have a beginning. If God created the universe, God has no beginning. Which means God existed without all this, right? You and I need food, especially steak. We need sleep. We need water. We need oxygen. We need all of these things. We need community. We need medicine. We, we have needs. We are not independent people. We are not independent creatures, but God is, right? God existed independently. Which means he doesn't have those needs. Paul talks about God being involved with uh, history, which was another great argument. So, you know, I don't know how many of you guys got into the Epicureans or Stoics in your small group discussions, but I think it's fascinating, right? Because the Epicureans especially, their beliefs about God were very similar to deism. And deism is this philosophical belief that there is a God who was uncaused, but he was the cause of creation, right? God, this belief in deism is that God created the universe, he caused it to come into existence, but then once it was created, he kind of stepped back, and now he he doesn't intervene in this created universe anymore. He still exists, but he's very distant and out there. That's kind of what the Epicureans believe. So as Paul's talking, he's saying, Nah, listen, God is intricately involved in human history. He 
He has set borders and times for, for different nations to rule and where they're going to rule. And, you know, God's hand is in all of this. So God's a very sovereign God. He's involved. He's personal. He does not just disconnected. He cares. As Paul is communicating, I think that is such an, an awesome thing. So as you and I, we, we have that opportunity, right? This is the beauty of the Bible. We have stories and stories of how God has worked throughout history to carry out His will. And, you know, I might add here that this is an awesome opportunity as we talk about what God has done to share your testimony. What has God done in your life? Are you aware of what God has done in your life? That's the hard question a lot of times. Oh, what, what has God done? What, what is God doing in my life? But share your testimony. And some people here have that like 180 testimony that gets so like, when you share it in front of people, people are just crying their eyes out. Wow. It's miraculous. God intervened in your life. What an amazing thing. Some of you have that testimony. Some of you are like me and you just grew up in the church. You grew up in a Christian family and that's all you, you don't really know life apart from, from God. You can look back and, and recognize a time where, yeah, I, I did trust in God, but I grew up in the church. I knew all the lingo as a kid. And let me tell you what, that testimony is no less powerful than the 180 testimony. We applaud one and not the other, but let me tell you, both of them are a miracle that God intervened in a sinner's life and changed your heart. And he's still working in your life. Talk about that. Talk about it. So we talk about what God has done, and we need to talk about what God is like. So if you threw Paul's, threw Paul, uh, Paul's speech in the Areopagus, we see many different things that he starts to talk about. I've mentioned a few. He's sovereign. He's independent. And I want to talk about his independence. The Athenians definitely would have not understood this idea, right? Because they have this, there are 30,000 idols said to be in Athens to 10,000 people. Three to one idol to human ratio. And they believed that all these gods needed something from humanity. They needed something from us. We could somehow serve the gods. And I want to talk about God's independence because it's different than that. God's independence is He doesn't need. God doesn't have a need. He's existed without need through all eternity. And now we as Christians sometimes fall into this trap of believing, even on a subconscious level, that God somehow needs me. He needs me to stand up in church on Sunday morning and preach a sermon. As if God's not going to work in your hearts if I didn't stand up here. Man, God needs me to serve as a children's ministry teacher. God needs me to serve as a a small group leader. He needs me to serve in Awana. He needs me to lead worship. He needs me. You fill in the blank. God doesn't need any of those things. But remember, God has created us to be creatures of worship. So He has created us to worship Him, to serve Him. God's the most sovereign being in all of the universe. He's created all the... How could you and I, a human being, who I have to sleep eight hours a night to be able to function the next day, how could I have something to offer to God? Because as Paul said, you know, he made one man, or you know, a little before that, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. So whatever you have, whatever I have that we think we could offer back to God, 
Paul saying came from God in the first place, which means if you follow his line of logic, remember, he's talking to the intellectual people. He's being very logical here. So if, if God has given us everything, then suddenly what I have no longer is a need to God because it came from him in the first place, right? Huh. Chew on that one for a while. Let that one sink into your heart. How would you serve differently if you served just with the, the heart of glorifying God? Not that God needed you. Not that God needed me to do X, Y, and Z. I love it in Psalm 50. Uh, God's talking, verse 10 through 12, and he says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. What a reminder for us that God's independent. God owns all of this. This is all at God's disposal. We just have the privilege and the opportunity to serve him, to worship him, to use the gifts and talents that he's given to bring glory to his name. So as you serve as a children's ministry teacher, you don't do it because God needs you to. You do it because, man, God has given you that passion. He's given you the skills to teach and interact with little kids. And, and man, you are going to use those things to glorify him, to brag about how great God is. I'm so thankful for an awesome worship team up here this morning, right? They, they come up here and they're using the gifts and the abilities that God has given them to lead us into worship of the most holy God. Thank you. Student ministry leaders, small group leaders, elders, you name it. We serve a God out of love for him, not out of his dependency upon us. God is an independent God. Secondly, Paul talks about his magnificence. And God is, is too great to be held in temples. And I imagine as Paul's sitting on the Aragopolis and he's talking to these people about God, he's in this city, right? And I imagine he's saying, man, God's not in temples made by humans. I imagine him just like pointing up to the Parthenon, right? We construct these beautiful buildings, spectacular structures, but God's not just in those structures, right? He's too great for that. Too magnificent. Way too big. Way too powerful. How could we confine the God of the universe into a building? He's everywhere. God is absolutely spectacular. Have you thought about what that really means? He says, listen, he's so great. He, he can't be in the likeness of idols. Now I imagine Paul's in there and he, he points literally just all around him at the thousands of idols that would have been seen. And he's talking to these people, he's like, see all these things? This isn't that unknown God. The unknown God is greater. He's far more magnificent than you could ever possibly imagine. So when we take the opportunity to witness about our faith, it is a chance for us to brag about God, to talk him up, how great is this God? How magnificent is he? How wonderful is he? Man, do you ever just look at, like, you're reading through your devotions and you're just, like, blown away at the awesomeness of God? You're learning about his character and, wow, 
What a spectacular God. And, and you know, we're, I've been studying through Wayne Grudem's theology book, and I just happened to be reading about the independence, the independence of God lately. And what a spectacular statement that Wayne Grudem made that, you know, our significance as human beings doesn't come from the fact that we can serve an all-powerful God. But that an all-powerful and independent God who created all the universe and has no need from us whatsoever loves us so much that he would go to the length of sacrificing himself to have a relationship with us. That though we have nothing to offer him, he still desires to have a relationship with us. Is that not the most loving God you've ever heard of? That is a completely different God than these people would have known. That's the kind of God that we get to introduce people to. We need to introduce people to God individually. So Paul's visit to Athens reminds us that we need to have a, a burden for the lost, and that burden for the lost should lead us to introduce people to God. And finally, we need to warn them of the spiritual realities. There's a day of judgment coming. Paul talks of it. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Brothers and sisters, we know the truth. Someday this created universe is going to come to an end and God is going to judge all of humanity in his righteousness. And the only possible way to find salvation from the wrath of God for our sins is through Jesus Christ. So there's an urgency to our commission to make disciples of all nations. Because we don't know when the end is coming. The scriptures say like a thief in the night, he's going to return. Are we making the most of all the opportunities to share the good news about Jesus? It's like one beggar leading another beggar to bread. We are sinners too who found freedom, who found salvation in Christ. Can we not lead other people to that? Do we not have that urgency, that burden for the lost to say, man, you need to know about Jesus. One, because there's a day of judgment coming. Two, because He is an awesome and magnificent God. And man, He loves us so much. And I have found such a joy and a freedom and a, a peace in this relationship with God that I found nowhere else in life. And I want you to experience that. Have you found something in Christ that is so spectacular to you that you just have to talk about it? It happens for us in all the other areas of our lives. You go see a great movie that you absolutely love and you just can't help but go into work the next day and say, man, have you seen this movie? Oh, man, let me tell you all about it. And you're like, i got to watch the spoiler alerts. You know, I don't want to give away too much. But it's like consuming your mind. Or you, you saw a great game and you're like, man, I, gotta, I just got to tell people about it. Well, do we have that same mindset about God? That well, I've experienced such a loving and awesome God that i, I got to talk about it. He's so much a part of who I am that I must share it with others. But we know that, you know, this proclamation of the unknown God, introducing people to God, warning them of the day of judgment coming is going to result in varying responses. We see in the past when Paul uh, referenced the resurrection, it says that some people mocked him. It was probably the Epicureans because the Epicureans didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They believed that what you got is, you know, your date of birth till the date you die. And when that 
day comes, it's done. They didn't believe, so they're probably like, yeah, resurrection from the dead, <laughs> whatever. And Paul's probably thinking, if we're going to be honest, like, oh, really? That's all? You're just going to mock me? Okay. You know, because remember, he's fleeing from Berea, which is a city he went to because he was fleeing from Thessalonica because people were trying to hurt him very badly for sharing the gospel message about Jesus Christ. But yet he comes now, and despite knowing the risk, despite knowing that you know people could hurt him, could harm him, could seek to kill him, this man had been stoned to the point where people thought he was dead, he still gets up and talks about Jesus. Is Jesus so great to you? Have you experienced that Jesus that, you know, despite any of the risks, you just got to talk about him? Despite knowing that some people are going to reject your message, that you're still going to share about it? Because the reality is, in, in our culture today, we're likely going to face only the same. Just some mockery. People thinking, <laughs> you're crazy. Believe in that whole Jesus thing. <laughs> Nutcase. That's probably the worst we're going to face. We got brothers and sisters around the world who are being killed, imprisoned, tortured. We need to have that courage to stand up and share. So there's rejection and there's contemplation. You may have that opportunity to share the, the gospel message with someone or talk about Jesus and, you, and your relationship with God, and people are going to be curious about it. I say, you know what? We need to hear, we're going to hear more of this. You've piqued their curiosity. They, they want to understand. Maybe something you said, perhaps God used to connect with them. Huh. Now the wheels are turning. Don't leave those conversations. Help people process. Talk with them. Be involved in it. They may ask you questions you don't know the answer to. That's great. Now that gives you an opportunity to go learn something new too. Go find the answer. Help them out. But as people contemplate, pray for them. Pray for them. Perhaps God's working in their heart in a way that you have no idea. You don't even understand. Be praying for those people who are contemplating the truths of the gospel. That God will continue to chip away. That they may see Him and trust in Jesus. And lastly, some people will respond with belief. So the Areopagus was made up of a, a large group, about 100 people, elite members of society. And, you know, from our passage, it says some joined him. One man was, uh, who was an Areopagite joined him. That's an interesting word if you ever try to say it. It may not be often that you share the gospel and you have the opportunity to lead someone to Christ. It's not going to be every time that someone's going to be like, ah, oh, of course, let me bow the knee to Jesus. And you get to be there for that, that uh, moment. It'll be few. It may be far between. But let's remember Paul's teaching later in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where he says it's, it's not the one who plants, it's not the one who waters, but it's God who causes the growth. You see, we live in suburbia. I don't know many farmers in our church, some. But we're all farmers in God's harvest field. We're all farmers in God's kingdom. And sometimes we're going to play the role of the planter. We're going to be planting seeds, conversations that may take root. 
may grow. Some of us are going to come alongside people and we're, we're going to be watering what somebody else perhaps has already planted. And sometimes we will have the distinct privilege of being there when God causes that growth. And we get to be there when somebody places their trust in Jesus Christ. And if you've ever had that opportunity to lead someone to the Lord, one of the greatest blessings of being a Christian. I remember a a few years ago, I was counseling at Family and Youth Bible Camp. And I had this ninth grade boy in my cabin. And, you know, he had been to camp a couple times. I knew him. We'd been talking. And, you know, we finally got to the point where we were really talking about God and and what Jesus has done. And and this boy said, "Ah, I really want to trust in Christ. And he gave his life to the Lord while he was at camp. And that was one of the greatest blessings, to be there and be part of that. And I was reminded of that moment. You know, you just get so excited for someone. I was reminded of that moment when Jesus talks about how, you know, in heaven there is great rejoicing that goes on when a sinner is, is saved. And I, I told him that and I said, you know what? If, if they're partying in heaven because you just got saved, let's party here on earth, Right? And so we went back to our cabin and we told all the guys, you know, what had happened and that he had placed this, he shared it and everything. And we just all like got excited. What a fun thing. You just get to celebrate when God's working in people's lives. And, you know, we get to be part of something like that with the all in this uh, December. We get to hear about how God has perhaps discovered new disciples of, of Christ. But we need to be taking those opportunities to share. Because you never know when you're going to be able to be part of a blessing like that. That God would allow you in his his graciousness to be part of somebody's story. That you're there when they would place their trust in Christ. What an incredible, incredible blessing. But to God be the glory for it all. There's not anything that you or I could say. There's no eloquence of our speech. There's no, you know argument that we could present that is going to turn a sinner's heart to God. It is God who's doing that work. God who's chipping away at their heart. And we just get to be part of that blessing. God is so good to us to allow us to experience that. So, Paul's visit to Athens reminds us that our burden for the lost should lead us to introduce people to God and warn them of spiritual realities. Who are you going to have the distinct privilege of introducing to God this week? Will you take the opportunity that God has put before you?